Welcome to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. I'm a professor, OD consultant, and change strategist, helping individuals and organizations experience life to the fullest and engaging in positive transformational change. In addition to this podcast, please check out my latest book, Embracing Resistance to Change, Facilitating Change Differently Through the Paradox of Resistance, available now through Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. Today I'm visiting with Sarah Bishop from Orchid Communications. So Sarah, how are you today? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. I, I, I never thought I would be so susceptible to sunshine and warm air in the way that it's, it's clear I've hit that stage in life, Jim, when, <laughs> wow, moods, moods really do track with the weather um, right now for me. So I'm, I'm actually doing really well. Yeah. I, I saw that shift when we, you know, got 50 degree rate uh, increase in temperature from the twenties to the seventies. It's like, okay, this is pretty nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm after this is done, I'm meeting a friend at my garden store to just do my like pre spring kind of shopping, which makes me really happy. So it's that, it's that time. That time. Yeah. So, so tell, uh, talk a little bit about your, your, your business that you've, you've started and just, uh, it's a, it's fascinating. So I'll just kind of leave it at that and let you kind of tell a little bit of your story. Sure. Um, so I founded Orchid Communications uh, in 2018 after um, teaching nonprofit communications, uh, nonprofit narratives and advocacy kind of methodology at the University of Arkansas in the communications department um, since I started teaching in 2012. And, you know, it was funny, I, I came to teaching by way of nonprofit fundraising. So my background um, was really working uh, for nonprofits. Um, and I found myself uh, in Arkansas, and I say that deliberately, um, wasn't really my decision to move here. Um, and definitely did not want to continue doing kind of the fundraising um, in Arkansas. I was doing it in New York City before and really enjoyed the anonymity of, of kind of working on, um, on fundraising, but in this, you know, smaller towns, what happens is, of course, you know, people know that you're in the business of asking for money. And so they start walking the other way when they see you. And I certainly didn't want that <laughs> to be my experience uh, when I moved here. But um, I, I went through some personal tragedies um, very soon after I moved here and really, um, you know, needed to figure out what I was going to do employment wise and and also just as a source of um, of you know, finding some sort of comfort through the grief um, and started teaching. But I, you know, I think when you, I was pretty young and so I, I love teaching, but you start to get an itch for actually the doing at some point. And so I, after about six years, you know, and you're, you're kind of that armchair critic of kind of the nonprofit scene, it was about time that I either kind of put up or shut up in my critique. And so I launched Orchid. Um, it is a communications consultancy firm um, where I pretty much exclusively work with nonprofits, uh, philanthropic organizations, so private foundations, um, some higher ed on 
issues of social change. So I am um, really looking to help people who are advocating for issues that are tough to talk about, um, that are, you know, very intractable kind of social issues, largely because we have so many stereotypes and assumptions and dominant narratives about why um, those problems exist in the first place. And so, um, yeah, I do everything from kind of overall communication strategy and vision to messaging hierarchies to kind of website strategies, um, anything that is designed to disrupt uh, dominant narratives that stand in the way of the kind of change um, that we really need in a state like Arkansas. Yeah, that, yeah, the, the information and, and the communication piece has got to be um, really powerful. And I, and I, I like how you talk about the, the narratives and the stories. What, um, what have you seen as, as um, some of the things that have been kind of most impactful or um, what, what is it that kind of like gets you out of bed every morning? Yeah, well, I honestly, you know, I was, I was doing nonprofit communication for a long time without really seeing myself and my own life in the work that I was doing. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who end up working in nonprofits, um, particularly where I was in New York City, um, are tend to be very disconnected from the, the issues that they're actually trying to address in terms of their own personal experience, because, you know, nonprofits don't pay a lot of money. And so in order to take a job in the nonprofit sector, you probably have to have, um, you know, some cushion and some, some, you know, financial security um, from other places. And so I was advocating for, particularly for refugees um, in my job at the International Rescue Committee. And of course, like hadn't fled my home, you know, as we're seeing right now, just, you know, one of the largest, potentially the largest refugee crisis since, you know, in Europe since World War II. Um, you know, I'd never had to flee my home because of war or persecution. Um, I didn't know what it was like to have to rely on, you know, um, multilateral agencies providing water and sanitation and education for my kids um, at a refugee camp. Um, but I was really good at my job. I knew how to raise money, right? And I knew that I knew how to tell other people's stories. Um, but I think I, my husband passed away soon after we moved to Arkansas under very tragic circumstances. And, you know, one day you are planning your future and you're talking about, you know, retirement, you know, plans and putting kids through education. And then the next day for me, I was, you know, pregnant and widowed at the age of 30 um, with a million dollar medical debt in a state that I had just moved to with no friends or family. Um, and I think when I found my footing, having gone through that, I was very um, observant to the stories that people were telling about me and my kids and how they were making sense. It's just, I think, tapping into this human need to make sense of our world and to make sense of things that are really difficult to make sense of. And it just kind of clicked over the course of a few years that, you know, our, the barriers that we're facing in terms of, you know, economic inequalities 
um, injustices when it comes to, you know, you know, racism and sexism and homophobia. So much of that is just the result of the stories that people are telling themselves about who these people are, why they are suffering and struggling in the way that they're struggling. And in our country, most of that points back to some sort of individual kind of character flaw. Um, and, and then the reverse is true. If people who are, you know, showing some signs of resilience, who are getting, you know, back on two feet, like me and my kids were able to do, it was all the result, you know, of hard work and this, you know, virtuous character traits such as um, dedication and grit and, you know, everything underneath that just was really invisible. And so I think seeing myself in the narratives that are playing out and the work that I did um, really just gave a lot of purpose to the work that I was doing. And it also just made that work even more poignant to say, it's not about raising millions of dollars. It's not about having more time and, you know, a communications team that can crank out social, you know, content every five minutes now to compete. It's about naming the stories that contribute to the, you know, to the stigmatization of people who are struggling with poverty and so forth, and then being really strategic and disrupting it. And that meant for me telling really honest stories about wealth and about privilege. Um, I think we put so much pressure on people who are struggling to tell their story, right? Um, I think all of nonprofit communications is about, you know, storytelling of, of those that are vulnerable. Well, you know, being poor is a full-time job, right? Being a refugee is a full-time job. I mean, you are, you don't have time to tell other people <laughs> about, you know, how, you know, the cause of your suffering and so forth. And it becomes really exploitative too. And so, um, I wake up every day recognizing that if more people who are in positions of security and positions of financial stability told really honest stories about how they got to that place, then I think we could open up so much more empathy and so much more solutions um, to those that are struggling because it, they're not different people. They're, they're the same. <laughs> um, and so the kind of stories about wealth and privilege are really just the flip side of stories of oppression and, and poverty. And if we can't be honest, particularly those of us who are, are doing the advocacy work, right? It takes a lot of privilege and a lot of wealth to be in the business of philanthropy and to be in the business of nonprofit leadership and, and board membership and so forth. Um, and I think that was just a space that I saw that was really untapped. Um, we don't have great models for it. I think it's very, you know, because of our, um, I think our dominant stories about individualism and, and meritocracy that it feels like we are, you know, there's some shame involved in acknowledging that maybe you did inherit a little bit of money from grandma and grandpa who were able to buy a house as a result of the GI bill that was not available to, you know, most black veterans, you know, that house probably turned into a little bit of help for your college education which was the case in my point, right? I had no debt for an undergraduate degree at the University of Virginia and no debt going to Oxford for my master's because my grandparents, my grandfather was a veteran. First thing he did when he got back with the GI Bill is he put himself through medical school. 
bought a house and that whole professional career as a surgeon and his home equity is, is still paying dividends to me and my brother today. It doesn't take anything away from us to acknowledge that. <laughs> but when we don't, you know, then I think it just perpetuates a lot of the myths that continue to keep people from accessing the kind of supports they need as well. That was a long answer, Jim. No, so no, stop. that's awesome. Yeah. I, you know, I, I do a Friday blog and, and just, just a few weeks ago, it was titled the illusion of rugged individualism. Yeah. And yeah. And that narrative that you're successful because of your hard work, or if you struggle, it's because you aren't working hard enough. Right. And but there's so much momentum and that you now we now have, you know, centuries of storytelling and cinematography and, and, you know, culture behind that narrative. And then, you know, we sit back and say, well, well, tell us how that's not working out for you. Right. And so you're talking about people who are already disconnected from power and platforms who then have to carry the weight of that and try to shift it. Whereas, that's for those of us who are profiting from that narrative, the responsibility is really on us to disrupt it and to say, actually, no, that's not how that played out in my own life. Yeah, it's the, the people in, in the, the people that are being exploited really don't have the power to bring about the change themselves. No, and that's so, why they're in the positions that they're yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. And so yeah. the idea of, well, they, you know, you should just do something about it or, um, you know, that, that narrative of like, I've done some volunteer work in the Pine Ridge reservation up in South Dakota and telling people about my experience there. And I, numerous times somebody would say, well, why don't they just leave the reservation and, and get out into regular society and then they won't be poor. And that's just such a, it's such an easy way to see it. It's such a, like, yeah, a false narrative yep. of, of under, not understanding generational trauma, not understanding the roots of poverty, not understanding just, you know, eco economic exploitation. Yep. You know, there's just, I'm preaching to the choir, I know, with, um, with the work that you do. And so um, what, what are some, I don't know if, if you can talk about some of your current clients or what are, what are some of the... I mean, I know there's obviously global challenges. Um, there's certainly upheaval across the whole, you know, country. Um, what about in our little corner of Northwest Arkansas? Yeah. So, um, so a lot of a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is um, kind of centered around a project that's actually a national project um, that United Way initiated. It's a research project. Um, that is really proposing a different um, standard uh, than the federal poverty line to measure a truer, truer look at financial vulnerability in this country. Um, so they, you know, the federal poverty line hasn't been changed since the 60s, basically, and it doesn't account for um, differences in cost of living, right? But, and so it gives a really... Um, incorrect, inaccurate picture of poverty when we say, you know, this small percentage, you know, is, is living below the federal poverty line. This, the, um, the United Way Research Project um, uh, is called ALICE, and ALICE is an acronym for asset limited, which basically means very little savings, right, very little equity, um, 
asset limited, income constrained. So, um, you know, not usually wage workers, not making living wage, um, but employed. So basically another word for the working poor, right? And when we look at cost of living, um, your, your basic household cost of healthcare, childcare, transportation, housing at the county level um, and at the state level um, in Arkansas before COVID, 41% of all Arkansas households live below a basic household budget. So almost half the state is living month to month, right? After COVID, the numbers are suggesting we're well over 50%. So the, the power of that, you know, it's, it's nothing new to many of us who have been, you know, kind of in this work, but it does give a very different face um, to poverty, um, particularly, I think, in the South, where there are very dominant kind of assumptions and stereotypes of the welfare queen, um, the single Black mother with multiple children who's taking advantage, right, of, um, you know, social services. Um, the Alice report makes it virtually impossible <laughs> to say that that is a true and accurate picture of poverty, right? Um, we're talking over 50, one out of two households. So black, white, every, every ethnicity, every race, right? Disproportionately for sure, um, black and brown households. Um, and I think for someone who does narrative change work, it's really, it's always nice to have the data and the research to back up um, a disruptive narrative. And so what it has done is really to point the finger at the systems and the structures that are allowing, right, um, and perpetuating um, the majority of the state to not, to not benefit. Um, so we look at a county like, you know, we look at Northwest Arkansas and we think of Walmart and J.B. Hunt and Tyson and all this, you know, economic development. Um, well, the numbers are still true in our counties, too. It's it's pretty much consistent that half of, you know, our county's households are not benefiting from that growth. Why is that the case? You know, it cannot be deduced to personal moral failures when you're talking about the scope um, of that. So, um a lot of messaging around around um, financial vulnerability that is util utilizing the Alice data, actually advocating for um, nonprofits and agencies to use the Alice threshold rather than the federal poverty line as an eligibility standard for services. Um, we have what's called the cliff effect, right? So, you know, there is that line, if you make just a little bit too much money, right? And you do everything that you're supposed to do to pull yourself up from your bootstraps, well, then you lose all the supports that you really needed to get to that point. Um, and so can, can we use the ALICE data to really increase um, those, those thresholds so that people have access to the very same supports that we all need um, to experience that kind of security? That's a big area that I'm working on. Um, I've also had the opportunity to be a little bit more innovative in some of my work um, and think about what holds back some narrative scaffolding in a state like Arkansas. And a lot of it is certainly the rural divide and our broadband issues um, make it difficult to amplify and hear voices in communities that are um, that are not centered in a lot of the debates and a lot of policy questions that are going to impact them, you know, most. 
So we started a project called Reimagine Arkansas. Um, it was a COVID project, really just because COVID gave us an opportunity. Um, but we are convening people who, whether it is um, undocumented uh, immigrants who are at, trying to access community college, you know, here in Northwest Arkansas, whether it was um, first responders during COVID, whether it is um, people who have experiences with the criminal justice system, with fines and fees, really trying to listen to underheard voices across the state and document their aspirations for the future. Um, and we're pairing those conversations with artists across the state. Um, one thing we know with narrative change is that, you know, you get to the point where you can't, you're so stuck with what you have and where you've been that we've now lacked. We have, we now basically our muscles, our imagination muscles have atrophied. We can't imagine something different, right? And art gives us the power to actually imagine something um, that is not yet here, but could be on the, on the horizon. So um, this is part of a narrative scaffolding project I'm involved in to make sure that we're not actually going outside of the state um, when we do need content, when we do need stories, when we do need art, um, that all of those resources are here um, and really just making sure that they are heard. We give nonprofits the communication capacity to amplify those voices, but those voices are always going to be attached to graphic designs and, and beautiful art by Arkansas-based artists. Um, it reminds me of that. Think about something different. That reminds me of that phrase, think global, act local. Yeah. Yeah. So it's reimaginearkansas.com. Uh, anyone who's listening, I invite you to check it I'm, out. Yeah, I'm going to share that with my students and listeners. Yeah, it's um, it, it's been a really fun project for me to work on. In fact, I think for anyone who is in consulting or thinking about consulting, there is this moment when as a consultant, you're advising a client on what has been done elsewhere and what is still needed and um, maybe some logistics on how to go about, you know, pulling that together. And they turn around and say, great, now can you do that for us? And you're like, whoa, wait, no, I'm just telling you what needs to be done. Um, and, and that was, and this is one of those moments where it was like, you look to the left, you look to the right, you know, it needs to be done. It's already happening, but you just, you know, you just may need a little bit of a quarterback to kind of pull all these pieces together. Um, and I think in my role, one of the things that I do, I, I'm ten, intentional about is I do have a lot of privilege and access to, to funding sources and to individuals who, you know, are in decision-making positions. And my goal with all of my work is to shift that power, not to me, but to those who are working in similar spaces, who are, you know, doing the, doing the hard work of holding community conversations, who are doing the hard work of advocating without pay most of the time, doing the hard work of, you know, graphic design and posters and um, and just the creativity that we need to think about a different Arkansas um, and making sure that they they can they can access that same resource goal. Yeah and yeah look how you've embraced Arkansas. Uh, I'm glad you think so. I'm still I'm still <laughs> <laughs> you know it's 
I, I will say I, um, you know, I moved here from Manhattan to Berryville, Arkansas, and it was not my first choice. Um, but you know, when you love someone the way I loved my husband, John, um, it was, you know, it was the right thing to do. And I did it knowing full well that if I, there was a time when I needed him to make a similar sacrifice, he wouldn't flinch. He wouldn't think twice and he would do it for me. Um, you know, I think there is a, there is a complacency in cities like New York, um, where, you know, you assume that everyone is kind of working towards the same thing. And I think a lot of the issues that are facing our entire country, right, are just a little less visible. Um, because I was surrounded by, you know, a lot of people who thought just like me, um, and were advocating for many similar things. I think the exciting thing for me being in Arkansas, recognizing that I am an outsider, and I think every, a lot of people will always consider me an outsider, and, and that's okay, um, is that I think the, the need for some change and the, um, the disparities of, I think they're just more on, they're just easier to recognize, um, and but yet harder. <laughs> harder to persuade. And so for someone who loves a good challenge, then yeah, I don't want to be anywhere else. Um, and I think there's so much opportunity for, for really meaningful change at not just for people who have been marginalized and have been disconnected. Um, there's been cycles of disinvestment in, in many communities for years, but, you know, I think our Kansans as a whole feel like parts of the world have left them behind in many ways. Right. And I think, um, I now kind of take it as a point of pride, you know, to say, yeah, I still live here and I'm, I'm, I'm proud to live here and there's important work to be done. And, um, if we all just moved, you know, to where it might be a little easier. Well, it's not, it's not it's, really what I signed up for in this life, to be honest. <laughs> it, it, it's interesting because my middle son um, went in the Peace Corps after college and lived in Morocco for two and a half years, came back and he'd always wanted to go to, to he grew up in Kansas, always wanted to go to Oregon, to Portland. So he moved to Portland, you know, keep Portland weird. He was there about two years and he, he just called me out of the blue and said, I'm, I'm moving. He goes, I need out of here. He said, everybody thinks like me. Mm -hmm. And he said, and I just feel like I'm in this little bubble and I'm not really can't be part of the change that I want to be. Yeah. So he, he's in Alabama now. And he's kind of been back and forth between um, South Carolina and Alabama. Yeah. And, um, and so and he, and he travels with his work, but he's, he's chosen that as his, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that would have been the last place I would have thought that my son would have moved to, but it's for that very reason of, you know, he, he wants to, yeah, he, he wants to be able to change the stories. Yeah. And I, and I have to say like, Arkansas really did embrace me. Um, and that is part of my story, you know, and I, a lot of that is because of, you know, how I showed up, how I looked, how I dressed, the family that I was, you know, connected to, but it was also, a, a, you know, 
I experienced a, a hospital, a hospitality that, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to disrespect because it was very authentic. And, um, you know, I was, in, I was in rough shape. Like it was, it was a rough transition and, um, there were countless people who not knowing me at all, um, made, made that transition and that path, you know, a little smoother for me. And so I do, you know, yeah, it's kind of a love hate relationship. You know, I blame Arkansas in many ways because you, know, you ask like, would this have happened if we hadn't moved here? You know, um, he would not have been working on, you know, chicken pads and, and rural, you know, Carroll County when his accident had happened, but, you know, we're here now and, um, you know, all you my can just drive yourself, you, you can drive yourself crazy asking all those what if questions. Yeah. And I, and I have stopped, you know, because it's just, I think there's a yearning in the, in the beginning, but, um, to your point, like it is, it's, it's futile and you got to live and figure out just how to hold, hold the lack of answers in one hand while you're, while you're living. Yeah. Well, this has been, this has really been fun. This has been fascinating. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to check out that reimagine Arkansas and I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to start following your work more closely. And, um, we just, we need, we need storytellers. We need, we need people that, um, can, can see things differently that can imagine things differently. And, um, you know, just, I heard the song today by Bruce Hornsby in the range about, um, the way it is. Yeah. It says some things never change. That's just the way it is. And mm -hmm. I'm like, no, it doesn't have to be. Right. Well, and I would say too, for anyone listening, I think, you know, in, in my teaching, so I'm still, te I still teach one, one class, um, at the U of A and, yeah, I have, a, I have a lot of students who do want to go into kind of this work, but feel as though they personally don't have any experiences, you know, that kind of link them to this. And I think the one thing I just want to say is the, the most authentic story you will ever tell is your own. So don't think of it. I don't think about my work as telling other people's stories at all. I am thinking about how can I create and shift the infrastructure so people actually can tell their own stories with the same amount of, uh, of air and amplification that I might be able to. And how can I just tell the story that I can tell the best, which is my own. And it's absolutely connected. Right. And so I think, you know, I just did this uh, project with my students and they all felt like, well, I, you know, I, I'm really privileged and I don't have any, you know, I haven't, there isn't a single story about me. Well, there is. And yes, it's nice to, you know, it's good that you acknowledge that you haven't experienced it in the way others have, but man, like tell the story of privilege, you know, tell, tell that story and, and outline it and create some new architecture in our brains so that we don't continue to ignore <laughs> the same sort of scaffolding that, you know, the person down the street who did not have access to all the things still needs. We all need the same things. So yeah, I just want to make sure that I am, I'm deaf. My work is not about telling other people's stories for sure. Um, my work is definitely about making sure that we remove as much as many of the intermediaries as possible 
so that people can not only own their own story, but they can also own and decide their own futures. Yeah. Break down those barriers. Yeah. A lot. We, we need, we need a lot more empathy and a lot more listening. And it is listening. Like you can't, you can't figure out what narratives are really driving our thinking and our decision-making unless you sit and listen for them a little bit. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, I was teaching a, a management class and one of the ethics cases that I shared with them was on the, the um, ethical aspect of payday, uh, payday lending. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I divided them, randomly divided them into two groups and they had to research and then they had to have a debate for and against. And um, the, there were a couple people that, and I had, I polled how many of you, before we did the case, how many, and like 80% thought, hey, nobody held a gun to your head. You know, it's, it's your choice. You know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's a business model. And if you don't like it, you don't have to use their services. And so we had that debate and it was completely unplanned, but I had a student that, that spoke up and said, I, I fell into that. And the class turned to him and like, you're an army vet. Mm-hmm. You're like, you know, you're, you're pretty established. You're a white male. How could, yeah. you know, and he, he shared a really powerful story of how when he was younger and was an enlist, you know, an enlisted person had a spouse and a couple of kids and it just, they, you know, just fell on hard times and just, and he shared that story and people were like, so surprised. They're just like, no, you don't, you don't fit our image of what that, what that's about. Right. And, and afterwards I pulled the class again and, and just in, you know, like secret writing it down and it was 80% thought it was unethical and that's, that's proximity. It's because they knew, you know, they, they had proximity to this person that didn't, you know, that really shifted their ideas. And I feel like there are so many things right now that preclude us from proximity. Not, I mean, of course, COVID yeah. for sure. But even just, if you think about, you know, the stratification of our housing and our communities, you know, we have now organized our, our entire lives um, where you never, you know, you, you never have to run into someone who doesn't agree with everything that you already think. Um, and so in social media, in our little bubbles. Yeah. And so, but we know that proximity is, is the key factor in, you know, in, in shifting, you know, changing hearts and changing minds. Um, so yeah, thank you for bringing that up because it's just, that's part of the work ahead too, is how do we reclaim um, or create proximity in, um, yeah, just physically and on digital spaces? Um, where, where, where are those remaining spaces where we can accomplish that? Yeah, I, I saw um, I, I, somebody on, on one of the social media, I can't remember if it was Instagram or Facebook, but they were, it was, it was sort of, um, it was a very like damning statement, but it just said people are disturbed by what's going on in Ukraine because these are blonde-haired, blue-eyed people that are being bombed. <laughs> yeah, and that just seemed wrong, and and yeah. it's like, yeah, it's it's it doesn't fit our narrative. No, we have we already have been conditioned to assign innocence. 
you know, to people who look like that for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, Sarah, this has been, um, this has been fun. I've, I've always enjoyed chatting with you. And I think maybe as we come out of the pandemic, uh, we need to um, meet down on on the square or on Dixon Street and grab lunch or coffee. I would love that, and I think we could probably think about of ten other podcast topics that we should we should tackle. So, <laughs> yeah, this is this is I I'm very um, impressed. Isn't the right word? I, I'm very moved by the work that you do and just the the passion and empathy that you have, and um, the the world needs more Sarah Bishops. Mm, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I think my, my kids may not agree with that statement, <laughs> but no. I, I appreciate it. It's, you know, it's just, everyone has so much to offer in this space and, um, and we're all, we're all connected. If COVID showed us anything, it's that, you know, we're all connected and dependent on each other. Um, you know, there's not a singular future, but your future is also, um, intrinsically connected to mine. So um, it's about figuring out what experiences you have and what skills you have to, to go and, and make it better as, as naive as that may sound. Um, I am 45 years old and I'm still probably even maybe more idealistic than I was at 16, 17. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Someone, someone made the comment about that, um, that I was on, that I was unrealistic. And I, I said, who wants to be realistic? I, I want to dream about what could be and yeah. and expand the possibilities. I don't want to just be stuck with uh, this is the way things have to be. No, if you can think it, you can build it. Yeah. So let's go build it, Jim. Yes, we need great communication people. <laughs> well, Sarah, I know you've got another um, appointment coming up, and so um, enjoy your your dirt therapy. Thank you. It is my therapy these days. So yeah. Um, yeah, wonderful to talk to you, Jim. You also okay. take care of yourself. Take care. And I will, uh, I'll let you know when this posts. Okay. Sounds good. Take All care. Bye-bye. Right. Uh -huh. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Chatting About Change with Dr. Jim Maddox. If you want to connect more, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and at my website, drjimmaddox.com. Thanks for listening.